When you think of the position of being a Navy SEAL officer, you think of young military personnel serving their country in one of the highest roles possible. On today's podcast, you will hear of a different role that they can serve, and that is the role of mentoring pediatric cancer patients. On today's podcast, Adam LaRue, the founder of the nonprofit One Summit, along with Executive Director Diane Lynch, will talk about how Navy SEALs have joined forces with pediatric cancer patients to teach them such important tools as confidence, courage, determination, and strength as they serve as mentors for these kids who need all the help that they can get. They do this by engaging them on a one-on-one basis, with the catalyst being teaching them how to rock climb, with the goal being for these kids to start at the bottom and reach the top, or reach whatever level that they can possibly get to. With a task that looks daunting to each patient as, as they begin this journey, the Navy SEALs teach techniques that help to ease whatever nerves these kids have and give them the confidence that allows them to accomplish a task that they may never have even thought to try without help from these officers who themselves have accomplished a great deal in their lives. By giving these kids confidence of accomplishing a goal and staying involved in their lives as patients, these officers go a long way in giving much-needed tools that can be used as lessons as they battle with their individual cancer situations. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This meeting is being recorded. It is now my pleasure to welcome both Adam LaRue, who is the founder of One Summit, and its executive director, Diane Lynch, to my podcast. Thank you both very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks. Now, I've had the pleasure of talking with many people who are involved with pediatric cancer, nonprofits, and foundations over the past two years. All of them are important, of course. But when you talk about an organization that has as its core members of the Navy SEALs, then that brings another level to this pediatric cancer fight, which is quite special. And I'd like to start with Adam to, to ask him to comment first, as he was a naval a, a Navy SEAL officer for 11 years. What was your experience like in something that is really beyond the reach of most of us? Well, the experiences, well, it was, um, my time in the service was incredible. Uh, you know, I think the opportunity to work with such like amazing people, um, you know, amazing, um, operators, um, during a very interesting time in our country. I mean, it's right post nine 11, um, pretty dynamic in a lot of different environments overseas, a lot of sacrifice um, from the teams and from the, you know, from the families and what they've done. And I just was uh, proud to, to be a part of it and to witness it and um, to work along some of the best trained, you know, men and women in the, in the world and the U S military has ever seen um, during a very interesting time. Now in 2004, and I'm going to continue with Adam here. You lost your mother to breast cancer, 
while a member of the SEALs, and then during your seven deployments, which I think I read after that, uh, to places such as Iraq and Afghanistan, you worked for in between a number of cancer nonprofits in which you saw adults like your mom going through such a difficult experience. But you also saw something with kids who were going through their own cancer battles that bothered you. And it was the fact that you noticed how difficult it was for them to, to handle these battles. Can you comment on that? Sure. I mean, a lot of that experience and, and, you know, insight kind of came from just watching, watching my mother battle the disease. Uh, I did not have familiar, really know much about cancer at the time. Um, my mother was the, you know, the first person that I knew with cancer um, who was diagnosed at probably 55 years old um, and saw her battle and what she went through. And at the same time, you know, I saw this, uh, you know, I was working alongside this incredible group of people that were just amazingly resilient, um, tough mentally, physically. And it, you know, it, there was like two worlds there between, you know, my mother and she had some of those resilient mental and physical resilience and toughness and grit. And so did the operators and the SEALs that I worked with. Um, it really was, it was then, you know, that I started to, to kind of realize that there's some sort of synergy here together between them. Um, you know, working as a, like in adults. And I think, um, we have all these different experiences in life and when something bad happens, we can probably reflect back, um, and have some resilience building skills. We have some self-confidence. We have some courage on some of the things we have some, um, some skills that we can have when, you know, some tools in our toolbox that we can have, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, taking care of ourselves, whether it's a, a mindset thing that we can kind of dig into when we have to go deep and, uh, you know, use those tools to persevere through some very challenging fit times, challenging events. Now, when I saw the children uh, that were battling cancer and get exposed to that, and we talked about Mark before this, it, before Diane, you know, before we got on this uh, call, is that you know it's an unfair fight. Um, kids are naturally resilient. I think they just they just want to be kids. They just want to grow up. And you know, from the experiences that you know they have, I, I think we wanted to to do something more to be able to like even the odds in the fight against cancer because it does seem very unfair. Uh, it sounds seems like something that they've been thrown at and you know thrown a curveball in life at a very young age. So how can we provide those types of skills or resilience building or self confidence or courage that we can provide them to battle the disease and uh, persevere? through it or through whatever challenges that they come through. Now, Diane, you come originally from a sports background, starting in 1997, when you were the first associate director of the New England Patriots Charitable Foundation, followed by your leading Major League Soccer's United Relief Fund Fund's fundraising drive after 9-11, among other work that you did. Can you talk about the period in your life up to 2003 when as will we get uh, we will get uh, into that uh, shortly? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting how a life can change so quickly in a matter of a year. Um, 
you know, when I moved to, I grew up here in the Boston area, worked for the Kraft family um, and learned so much from them and from working with Myra Kraft um, and working on the foundation side of things, you know, really taught a, being taught what philanthropy really looks like, you know, and still I was, I still felt I was fairly young. Um, and it was just a, an educational process of my life to get to New York, work for an organization like Major League Soccer equally um, you know, new and had a great approach to community, but also, you know, young, newly married, pregnant, and sort of living a really, really simple, fun, exciting life. Um, and then I was in New York during 9-11. Um, my office was right across from Grand Central. My husband's office was right at Rockefeller Center. I walked into my office watch TV as the second plane hit and our lives changed. You know, it's, you know, it's one thing as a, it's as a country, but it's another experience to be a part of, of a terrible time in our history, but also to live in a city that we love that was going through so much trauma. It was like a flick of a switch for the majority of us living there Interestingly, at that time, not knowing Adam, he was across really, you know, probably 25, 30 miles away from me um, as he was still finishing school at that time is my understanding. And, you know, I was pregnant with my oldest son, Jack. Um, we watched our whole community struggle in a city that was was torn apart but yet we all came together as a city, as a community to support everyone around us. And I had the, you know, the honor and the ability to work with all the teams around the country to, to really set up a relief fund. And that was really the first piece of, besides, you know, working on the New England Patriots Travel Foundation, that this was so community related to me. It was a part of, of my life now. Um, which is not something you would ever think would happen, but we were there. Um, probably about a year later, after I had Jack, I did move my family, my husband and I moved back to Boston to be closer to family. I was pregnant with a second child um, and I was still working in sports and I still loved all that sports piece. But then again, with a flick of a switch, our lives changed again with um, my son Jack's diagnosis. Exactly. And this took place in October of 2003. As you said, you were pregnant with uh, your second child, Aiden. And then you, but you noticed that Jack was walking with a limp and also seemed weak and he seemed tired. Can you talk about that exact period and what was he diagnosed with after being taken to the doctors? Uh, you know, um, Jack was a, an incredible ball of energy. He was unstoppable. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Adam's little guy, Diego. Um, he, and we just could never like calm him down. He was constantly going. He was always on the move. And then one day he just kind of got a little tired and he was walking down a set of stairs. I'll never forget it. And he said, ow, and he was little, but as he's walking down the stairs, he was saying, ow, ow, ow. And that was so strange to me. And then you know, he started to present with some, you know, kind of flu-like symptoms, pneumonia. And we had an incredible doctor at the time who was just a pediatrician. And I called him and one day Jack woke up with little bruises around his eyes. 
and I, it was on Columbus day. I'll never forget the day. And we drove to, you know, our local pediatrician. He took one look at Jack. He's like, so you need to go to the hospital. And we're like, Oh, it was just strange to us. We're like, but he's okay. Right. And they're like, you need to go to the hospital. And he had already known by looking at Jack that there was something seriously wrong. And we, um, went to the floating hospital for children, Tufts Medical Center, and sat in that emergency room as a seven month pregnant mom with a little tiny baby still in diapers and um, almost immediately within a blood test. And, you know, a very, very skilled doctor oncologist took a look at him and said, we think that Jack has uh, neuroblastoma. And at that time, it was long enough that we didn't necessarily were able to start looking things up right away. Uh, but I was pretty familiar having worked on some of this stuff um, with the Patriots Foundation about some diagnoses. And I knew, you know, it was a gut punch knowing that this was not a good diagnosis. Um, as we went through the process a little bit longer, he was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma. He had an abdominal tumor. And by the time we caught it, it was already in his um, lymph nodes. It was in his spinal fluid and had um, had optical tumors all throughout his body, optical and throughout his entire body. So we never left the hospital. I mean, he immediately was admitted and went straight into treatment within two days. Again, that flick of a switch. Exactly. the How quickly life can change, as you have said. And of course, you're correct. Now, Adam, as the decade of the 2000s continued, you were overseas quite a bit. You had already done some work for cancer nonprofits. My question would be, when did you put two and two together and think about how the very difficult job of being a Navy SEAL could go hand in hand in helping kids with cancer deal with their individual battles with this disease? I think it was more uh, towards the towards the end of my career. Um, you know, maybe it's a great question. Maybe it was because I was coming to a transition. Um, is because maybe um, things were starting to matriculate in my head, and I was processing things differently. Um, things not necessarily slowed down for me, but you know, I think it was just a it was just a treadmill that was running so hard and so fast that when my mom got diagnosed and I was like finishing up SEAL training at the time and then how fast like everything went and time was going and how busy we were. And just to have some moments of reflection later on and kind of starting to formulate a, a plan and I, I brought it up to a few people. I was like, I think that there's a, there's a great idea for a nonprofit to bring like these two, two different demographics together. And I don't think that early on in like 2004, 2005, I would have, I would have put those two worlds together because I just didn't know the impact, like the long-term impacts of combat and war and what it does to individuals and people. And and then also simultaneously just like bereavement of, you know, cancer and just losing, losing a mother and seeing working in other, these foundations and seeing the impact of this disease on like everybody, like siblings, um, spouses, you know, relatives, friends, you know, other family members. So 
I think all that combined, um, and then towards the end of my career, just saying, Hey, listen, I, I think that there's something that's needed here. And the first, at first glance, it was like, how can we help the kids? Right. Like how, like, what can we do to even the odds? But I do feel that there's a huge element for the veteran side on this or not even, I want to call it veteran because a lot of our mentors are actually active duty. So I think at first I was like, yeah, the veteran, the veterans coming together. This is a great way to continue to serve when you take your uniform off because everybody that goes into the SEAL teams wants to serve. Um, and they want to continue to serve to the duration of their life. And most veterans are like that, or most active duty are like that. They want to go continue to have meaningful work when they're done. And I feel like that <clears throat> this was like a great opportunity to continue to do that, to continue to volunteer. Technically, the military is a volunteer service. You know, it's like you volunteer, you know, you volunteer, you show up, you sign up for a certain amount of time. And uh, this, this work in the nonprofit world and helping others is very close to home uh, for all veterans and active duty, but in particular, the SEAL teams. Now, I'm going to bring up the word, which is used quite a bit in your organization, uh, the word being resilience, which plays quite a bit, um, as I said, uh, in in one summit. Now, how did this word, uh, while you were formulating your ideas, play a part? Because what you do as a Navy SEAL is 80% of the people who try to become Navy SEALs drop out. I think I read that. So most don't even make it. And then you have to compare that with these pediatric cancer patients who also face some difficult odds. So resilience, that's a key word for you. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I feel like that's what we, I got to witness and live through and see um, on both sides, um, work volunteering at like nonprofits and, and seeing that, that side of the world. And also in the military is like, what made, what makes a good seal a great, you know, what makes a great seal, a great seal. And, um, I think it's very similar, like professional athletes, um, and what makes a great professional athlete, what makes a hall of famer. I think it's, it's resilience. No one's playing, no one's hitting over 300 every year, you know, consistently. And the people that do, they, they go into slumps and they just, what makes them good and bouncing back? What makes a great professional or amazing professional hockey player that plays all the time? What makes a great seal, you know, um, elite performers. It's like, not everyone's playing at hundred percent in their best day. It's, it's resilience. It's to be able to, you know, go through life's wins and losses and ups and downs and to be able to persevere through them. And I think at the time when we were talking about resilience, um, we wouldn't have talked, we wouldn't have spoke about resilience if there wasn't traumatic things that happened along the way, right? Without trauma, there is no resilience. So I think that there's elements there that just to formulate what we need to do to take care of ourselves better, um, whether that was in the military or whether that's in life or people that work in hospitals and, you know, uh, that work in healthcare workers and um, child life specialists and families, like they need that's something a word that is uh is brought up to them because you know they're going through some tough challenging times now diane you had stated that your life really began to some degree in 2003 with a neuroblastic neuroblastoma diagnosis of jack and that you were determined that you were going to do everything you could to have your family lead as life uh, as normal a life as possible can you talk about that 
period from say 2003 through 2006, um, which also included the death of your father. Yeah, um, I think as I you know I said earlier, you know we we were pretty fortunate. We led a really simple everyday type of life, which changed with Jack's diagnosis, and we went from a two-income family to a single-income family. We had one child on the way, um, and and then we just decided, um, my husband and I, that we were going to divide and conquer. Um, we knew that this was going to be our life for the next three years, um, at a minimum looking at, you know, what a child pediatric cancer diagnosis was going to look like. So we just sort of buckled down, divide and conquered. I worked on with Jack on the medical side of things, um, knowing that it was a full-time job. Plus that uh, he really looked at how do we keep our household running as best as possible while supporting our children, our new coming children. And, you know, what we didn't realize is this was a, our first step into really being a resilient unit or family. Um, you know, Jack, he was a remarkable young man, but in hindsight, when you look at it, we were a remarkable family to be able to know um, what his future could potentially look like. It was, you know, their, their survivorship of stage four neuroblastoma at that time was um, very low. I sort of deeply knew in my heart all along that he was not going to survive, but we were going to make sure that the quality of his life was going to be the best life that he could live, um, that we were going to add to our family while Jack was here and present um, and bring that joy and the needs of our other children together. Um, and we did, you know, we, you know, we used to go into floating and leave there and, I would get into the car with Jack and now Aiden's born. So I've got, you know, a baby in a bucket, you know, hauling him around. I would bring him into treatment with us and would leave the hospital and say, well, let's go to the zoo. And we would every single day find something to do that would sort of offset what happens in a clinic or what's happening after, you know, months and a time in the hospital. And it was really all about maintaining our family unit, but having a really positive approach to what his treatment could look like. Um, you know, luckily he was young, so we could we could model for him and say, great, you lost your hair. That means the medicine's working. So this is nothing to be upset about. You know, you don't feel great today, but you're going to feel great tomorrow. And it means that we're moving forward. And he followed our lead. Uh, and by that, you know, he never complained. He should have been in the most remarkable pain, but he just persevered through everything. Um, during that time, I, my, we decided how crazy this is um, that we needed to have another child. And, and Thomas Lynch, my now youngest 16 year old was born in October of 2006. Um, during that time, my father passed away three months before, actually two months before Thomas was born. So in September, my dad passed away. October, Thomas was born. Jack passed away in November of the same year. Um, 
it's so remarkable that Jack probably shouldn't have made it that long because he was just, he was not in the greatest of shape, but that little guy hung on every single second to meet his brother, Thomas. And he named him after Thomas, the train, Thomas, the tank engine. Um, but we also knew that Aiden, my now oldest, we couldn't have him be alone in this world. And that we just had to make those steps. However crazy my husband thought I was at the time. I'm like, we need to keep building this family because it's, we are going to be changed forever in a very short period of time. And, you know, in hindsight and after meeting Adam, it is, it was truly the ability to become resilient, to be taught to be resilient by Jack and all of the kids that were around him. Um, you know, Mark, you've worked in this space for such a long time. You've seen these kids and we know what the reality of a lot of these diagnoses are. And to see a family that is, has a different approach, a positive approach, um, you really can affect a quality of life. You can add some longevity. You can start to take a look at what bereavement or survivorship looks like in a positive way and take the trauma and work it towards something that's a little bit better that can help you grow and become stronger. Uh, Jack gave us the ability to do that. And, and I do believe he lived the life that he needed to leave to prepare our family for what was down the road for us. Well, um, that's that's quite a legacy for him to, you know, be, be very uh, uh, proud of up there. And of course, for the family to be proud of here. Now we're going to turn to 2013 in Adam's case, as you were now attending the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, where you were going for your master's in public administration, and you met a member of the social impact and venture capital community named Tom Bird, who became your mentor. Can you talk about Tom and the proposal that you put together that eventually became the Pediatric Cancer Nonprofit uh, One Summit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I transitioned. I wasn't even a hundred percent out. I was using all my, uh, you know, my terminal leave. We call it in the military. All the dates that you, you know, you, all the vacation time that you couldn't take over the last uh, decade. You know, using that at the end of your career. Um, so I was transitioned out of the military. Um, you know, lucky enough to to get into um, the Harvard Kennedy School, the one year mid career program. And, you know, I was definitely looking at that as an opportunity to kind of um, find my next passion and to formulate the plan. Now, before I even got out, I sent an email to Mass General Hospital, the pediatric oncologist, a cold email, cold calls. I didn't know how any other way to get in touch with somebody, but Google uh, pediatric oncology and then just start cold, you know, shooting off emails and saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning. Um, I have this idea um, for, you know, a, a nonprofit or, you know, I think that there's a great synergy here between these two worlds. This is what I want to do. And, you know, it definitely met with a lot of resistance. I mean, obviously there's a lot of, uh, and someone's cold calling and e or cold emailing something like that. I think there's a lot of responses that you just don't get back, <laughs> you know? Um, and then starting the program, you know, it started over the summer, um, I started thinking through the program a little bit and I wanted to uh, leverage all the assets that Harvard had there. And a big part of that was the Harvard Innovation Lab. So the Harvard iLab, it's on the uh, business school campus side. 
And if you put in uh, your application, like, a, you know, you basically have to draw up a business plan, throw it at them. And, you know, obviously they're not expecting like something that's absolutely perfect, but they, you know, they, if they see an opportunity, um, they think it's a good idea. They give you like a free office space. They give you a mentor, um, access to other people. And then I, of course, no one has any money at the time. So like, you know, there's like a whiteboard where people put like, who's good at website, who's good at marketing, who could do this. And you're just, it's a, it's an innovation hub. And a part of that is uh, getting a mentor. And I was partnered with, um, uh, Thomas Bird. Now, Tom, um, you know, he, uh, the way I look at Tom is like, Tom is, he is, um, he's great. He's a great entrepreneur. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he, he's all about impact and giving back. So we hit it off right away. Um, and I had this idea and plan. I came out and he's like, okay. He's like, you've thought about this for, you know, for quite some time, obviously. And you have, you seem like you have a pretty good plan, you know, plan here. Um, so he, he, he just helped, you know, kind of along the way, uh, shape a lot of my thoughts. And the way I look at Tom is Tom as an entrepreneur, um, and a, like a business owner, uh, he, he does the fundamentals like very well. And he is, he's well-read. He's got a lot of experience, um, you know, Stanford MBA. And he just, he, he has seen and done a lot. And at this stage of his life, he was like, I'm, he's there uh, helping, I think, deliver impact, helping entrepreneurs think more a little bit about this, you know, this world of, you know, giving back entrepreneur, social, um, you know, uh, social entrepreneurship. And that's what I was really passionate about. I'm like, I, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to have always had that mindset. I think my father always had that mindset. I think in the military during the time that we had, we didn't have all of the answers. So you had to be innovative and think through that. So I, that was really exciting to me. And, you know, Tom still is a close friend today and um, he's a member of the, the board of one summit. Um, so that's, you know, now we're going on, uh, you know, almost 10 years. Well, certainly uh, you definitely met the right person then. Uh, no question about that. Now in that proposal, you talk about climbing mountains and the similarities that it has for pediatric cancer patients. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, yeah, that was something that we we had to do and be familiar with in the in the military. Um, we had to be able to to climb something sometimes tech, very technical, sometimes less technical. Um, but to me, it, it seemed like a great metaphor on when I envisioned, um, you know, what you know somebody like. Diane and Jack had to endure, or my mother had to endure. It's like you come out and you're going down this path of life and someone just drops a huge mountain in front of you. <laughs> and then that mountain's a, a monster challenge. And how do you do it? How do you think through it? And it takes a lot of things for one, you know, not getting overwhelmed by this huge mountain to climb. And just like Diane highlighted, like taking one foot handed foothold at a time and incrementally moving along the way. Um, what does it take? It takes trust, um, mentorship. It takes goal setting. Um, and then knowing, talk about resilience. It takes a lot of, um, there's a lot of missteps and falls and the path that you think you're going to take up the mountain to get to the top and the path that you actually take end up always being two very different paths and two different routes. And, uh, you know, to me, it seemed like a, a great metaphor, a great thought about bringing, um, explaining one summit, explaining what people are 
are battling and then it happens to tie into the model of experiential learning and what we do at one summit to do rock climbing and bringing kids with cancer and Navy SEALs together to build that resilience. Now, Diane, in 2006, as we, we know, your son Jack passed away from his neuroblastoma battle. Four months after that, you were diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. Um, so what you did was you jumped back into charitable work, which included an organization called Golf Fights Cancer and the nonprofit Family Reach. How were you able to muster up the strength to face what you needed to face and continue uh, to play a role in these two very significant organizations? Um, it was almost easy um, when you spend years and years and years of your life in the cancer community, um, you know, very quickly your priorities change. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have developed the skills while I was in my sports and professional life to figure out how to start foundations, organize foundations, um, do community work, and to really approach nonprofits in a way that fundraising is a priority on a mission that you really feel strongly about. Um, I was very fortunate to have been put on the board uh, and was the first associate director of Golf Fights Cancer, knowing that we were going to be helping other cancer organizations. Similarly, with Family Reach, uh, it meant so much to me to be able to help on the financial side of things and the skills that I had in the story that that Jack and I had on our own really helped us sort of form some of the conversations around whether it's financial um, toxicity of cancer, research, um, hospital needs. You know, we had that insight to be able to be, be a really great asset to just incredible organizations. Uh, you know, we talk about sort of that resilience piece and that flicking of a switch, you know, not only did our lives change, but our career paths changed, um, priorities changed as a family, you know, the idea of resilience and having to go back and battle cancer and explain to all of our families that, all right, so we're back in this again. Uh, it's, it, it was a daunting task, but to have the ability to help other organizations while we were there, uh, I was on the board of Tufts Medical Center while I was in while Jack was in treatment uh, as a more of that very first family advocate on the board um, because we knew it. We lived it. We had a voice uh, and were able to share that voice in our story to help help these organizations. And to me, if I was going to go back work after I finished my own treatment, which was a couple of years, it was fairly aggressive and having a three-year-old and a four-month-old at the time, or six-month-old at the time, being able to sort of balance the family and what's important, um, we were able to do that. And, you know, we, we worked with a lot. We still do a blood drive as a family with the American Red Cross and have done a memorial blood drive for 18 years. These are important things that helped our kids and our family 
overall understand why we do what we do, the ability to give back, to help us become stronger because of it. Um, and, and it has really truly been a gift for myself to, for my own sanity, for my own resilience building, for my own growth, uh, to be able to to help and give back in that way and to share Jack's story and my story as it sort of seems to tie into all of it as the same at the same time. Now in 2014, Adam, you had your first climb for courage, which is the essence of one sum of, of the uh, one summit nonprofit. Please talk about the objective of one summit and what climb for courage entails. Yeah. Well, the inject, the objective uh, for one is it provide an experiential learning environment for the kids. And I say kids, but there's a wide range of ages, like young adults, kids down to young adult, up to young adults to provide this experiential learning, to be able to provide, you know, provide these lessons and take away some skills um, with them to develop more self-confidence. Those things are overcoming fears of starting something new. Now for them, some of them might be in the beginning of their treatment. Some of them might be transitioning from treatment. Um, we have the siblings that are also a part of it. So this is not extends far further than just the impacted child. We try to develop the entire family. <clears throat> and by the way, that came out of what we hear from the, um, what we hear from uh, the, the hospitals, like, Hey, there are a lot of seams and there's a lot of things that we just don't do that well, or we don't do enough of. Can you guys add this? And we're, we always are usually saying yes for pretty much everything and, and how we can within, within our charter and continue to do that. Um, we want them to think about goals. We want them to walk away <clears throat> thinking that they um, are more confident in doing something that they never thought they'd be able to do. Some are pretty physically um, impacted due to what the, the treatment, some of them are, um, have a lot of cognitive um, issues and challenges. Um, some who are absolute amazing athletes, but bef before that they went into treatment and then now they're, they just haven't done anything athletic or physical in a long time. So <clears throat> it's a little leap of faith with the hospitals and the family to just like trust us. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up um, talking about, you know, Lisa Sherber and, and Dana Farber on this because Lisa was the only hospital that gave us said yes. Um, they were the ones that said, absolutely, we're progressive. This sounds unique and different and something that we want to be a part of. And we trust that you guys are going to take care of our kids, that you guys are going to go ahead and, um, you know, provide the impact and do it exactly what you say you're going to do. And um, that first climb was was incredibly special. Um, Dr. Steve Salland um, was there. He was the chief of staff at Boston Children's Hospital at the time. Um, the way Lisa and, and the, the hospital would say, like he was the big cheese at the hospital, right? Like he was, um, and the unique part about this is that who else was on our board of directors was a close friend of mine's father, uh, Steve Hardy. So Nate Hardy was a very close friend of mine in the SEAL teams who was killed in Bakaba, Iraq in 2008, February 4th, 2008. His older brother, 
was diagnosed with cancer and died in high school when Nate was, you know, a little bit younger than him. So Nate had that his entire life. And Dr. Saland was a pediatric oncologist for Nate's older brother. And, you know, just the, the, the full circle of like some of these connected, this connectedness of one summit and these like very special moments, like <clears throat> to me, they're not accidental. <laughs> they're these things that have, that have happened. Um, Diane coming into the organization, um, the things that she's done um, with us, the people that have been a part of the board, the people, the hospitals and the kids and the families that we've been connected with. It just, you know, he, his feedback was after 40 years of being at, in this, in this space in pediatric oncology, I've never seen a more impressive intervention with pediatric, with pediatric, uh, on the pH cancer side. And, uh, I, I guess from, from a pilot standpoint, we didn't call it a pilot at the time. I think we, we kind of talked about the program, like we've been around forever, <laughs> you know, so people would try and trust us with their, their kids and, and say, Hey, we, we know what we're doing here. We're going to be okay. And that validated us quite a bit internally, just like that we're, we're on the right path and we're doing the right things. Well, I was going to talk about Dr. Sound later because I read that quote and this is someone who he started as an intern, I believe, or a resident 50 years ago, 1972, was on the staff from 1975, um, was the chief of staff at Dana-Farber, I think, for 17 years, and now he's chief of staff emeritus. So this is someone with a wealth of experience. And to have him say what he said about your program is certainly, um, you know, that really says it all. And as far as Lisa Sherber, um, I've had the pleasure of having her on my podcast and she's a director of uh, family services for Dana Farber and another real icon uh, in the pediatric cancer communities. So to have two of those really important and well-known people at such a great uh, place like Dana Farber, again, is, is just such a great tribute to what you've done. You, you, you partially answered my question. Where did you get the kids now? I'm going to ask you how difficult for you was it to find Navy SEALs uh, to perform as mentors? It, not really not difficult at all. I mean, for one, I went right to my friend network. <laughs> I went to all, all the guys that I served with and that were in my, in my troops and my platoons and people that I kept regular contact with, you know, they, they knew how passionate I was about this. So, you know, I think the first event, uh, they didn't know what to expect. Um, and then bringing them up, they were like, okay, we're on board. Like, it sounds, it sounds amazing. So the first, the first event, um, or the first program experience, um, that was, it wasn't really difficult at all. Um, and I think getting the word out in my mind, it was, I guess, mainly going to be veterans, um, when I first, we first started and that, that changed quite a bit, um, that changed quite a bit. And, you know, I never thought that someone would come back multiple times as a mentor and to do it. That was something that, that wasn't in my model or something that I did not think that people would come back and say, like, okay, you get paired up with this child, like go forth and do good work. Like, you know, you know, do everything you can to kind of help this person or help this person out, help this family out that you can, but they continue to come back. Um, and then we also on the active duty side, um, you know, th these, these guys are super busy and they're training and deployed still all the time. And for them to take time out and to take leave and to come up here to do this and 
I think most of, at this point, most of our mentors are active duty versus veterans. Now, Diane, Adam eventually found you and reached out for a meeting. Now, this was Adam's description of your meeting. And I'll quote, I knew some of her story, but was not prepared for the depth of her character. I almost cried twice. What is your response to that quote? Interestingly, meeting Adam, I also almost cried twice. Uh, You know, when I took the meeting through um, some mutual friends of both Adam and I, I did not have any expectations as to what one summit was, what they even needed from me. Um, I'd done some consulting work and it wasn't until I was almost walking in the door when I asked, I'm like, what do they want from me? They have, you know, I can see that they've got an organization here. And she said, well, they may be looking for a, a new approach, a new executive director. I was like, oh, well, that makes things interesting, but I don't really understand what Navy SEALs and pediatric cancer patients have in common. So, you know, I had nothing to lose. I sat down in a coffee shop. Adam, incredibly unassuming, walks in and sits in front of me. I'm like, all right, so tell me about what what it is that you're doing. And it was almost immediate to hear Adam tell his story about his mom, about his service. And he really kept talking about that key word of ours, resilience. Um, Then I was able to tell my story and talk about Jack and my family and the revelation of understanding that what we were was resilient, uh, what our family had gone through was post-traumatic growth. Uh, These are all things that I really learned from Adam in the first 15 minutes of just sitting in front of him. The realization of knowing that Jack's story and my story was so relevant every single day and every piece of the work in the future of one summit made me realize that this is where I needed to be. And this is the work that I needed to do. Uh, and it, it was immediate. Adam and I left that meeting when we were like, well, see you tomorrow. Like it was, it was almost we're like this, it just, it, it felt exactly where I needed to be. I wanted to get back to that space of, you know, I always talk to Adam and our board that we are still a really young nonprofit. And although I've been there five years in the overall scheme of some of these larger organizations, we have done remarkable things. We are, you know, incredibly self-sustaining. We are growing in a thoughtful, you know, strategic way. And yet we are making a really direct, direct, direct impact on these kids and these families. And then the introduction of the, of the, the piece, the sibling piece was such a huge priority to me to have two bereaved siblings that this is the type of program that would, if they were able to be a part of it, would have been one of those ones that really stayed with them and really helped develop them um, as young men, as mentors. And and they actually volunteer for our organization. Adam is very familiar with um, the Lynch boys. And I knew that that was the place for me to be. And 
then the challenge of looking at, you know, when you work in an environment for so long in the cancer space, I didn't understand the military aspect of it. And so me to challenge myself, I'm like, okay, so it really is a 50-50 organization. 50% of this is designed for families, children's caregivers, siblings, patients, but 50% of it is also designed for um, this remarkable community of U.S. Navy SEALs and how are we providing them service outside of the service that they're already being a part of? Will that help facilitate growth and work through trauma on their on their end too? So really that balance of the both things is what makes this so unique. I'd never seen anything like it. No one is ever going to see anything like it because Adam created it and we've been building it um, to, to where it is now. And you've been there now five years as its executive director. What are your would you say your major responsibilities on a day-to-day basis uh, that, that uh, you need to do? Uh, we are a small yet mighty organization of three full-time staff, myself included. Uh, when I first came on board, you know, I, I like to say that I spent a year just trying to understand it you know, tweak sort of the caregiver and the patient side of things and, and, you know, through Adam and a lot of our mentors, educate myself as to what the needs are of everybody. You know, most importantly, it's fundraising, right? You know, you can't do the work that you need to do if you're not constantly fundraising and make sure that you are stable for the long term so that when you do want to add and build a program that your finances are there and, you are, you know, solid and have the support of a good board and a good donor base. So that's a big part of our day. You know, when you're an organization like us, it's the program piece is also, you know, not only were we fundraising, but we run all the programs. So we're not a grant giving organization. We raise the money and we and we run programs. So our programs are our Climb for Courage program. We do community engagement programs, probably um since we've started about 40 different community engagement programs, whether it's skating with the Harvard hockey team, going to a major league soccer game, doing base tours out in San Diego. And then we have our stories, our online stories from the summit engagement programs. It's all of that program. And then there's the, you know, the not so fun administration of running a nonprofit. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic challenge. And now we have a really remarkable staff and colleagues uh, that are starting to, you know, we sort of divide and conquer and then work together to make sure that we have the best programming possible, including a new liaison on our West Coast, um, who's an active duty Navy SEAL that is working for us to make sure that we strengthen and build that program uh, on the West Coast with our Navy SEAL base out there. And then we're going to be launching in Virginia Beach this year. So we were also bringing the program to where our mentors are and working with the hospitals in that community. Um, we find those are just some really remarkable mentorships between the kids and the um, Navy SEALs there. Now, Anna, I'm going to kind of add on to that question or, the, or that statement that Diane just made at the end. Can you talk about the one-on-one relationships between a Navy SEAL and a pediatric cancer patient or a sibling? Uh, as you said, their siblings are part of this program and how long these relationships last? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's different uh, for everyone. That's a, that's a question that every mentor asks coming in, like, what do these relationships look like? 
and how long do they last and you know what does right i actually think they they their the guys mindsets are so goal oriented and focused towards a mission they get what mission is they get accomplishing the mission and if you give them an end state they will get they will get there and um, I think they want the answer and it's hard to give them what an answer, what right looks like, because it's guided a lot of times by the family and the child. And some are very young and some are really old uh, or older, um, the kids, uh, some are going into college, some are transitioning, some guys are end up playing video games virtually with them while they're deployed. You know, um, some are become very connected with the family. I have a couple relationships with the with the families um that are really special that they're they're my friends now um and just to see the families go through and graduate high school and go on to college and do amazing things or come back to volunteer at one summit at events now and experiences that's that's some of the most impressive now we have our our a huge alumni based that come back and that are a part of it and they want to find other ways to engage the community so i don't think that there's like a a one-stop shop answer on what that relationship look like. It depends on the age. It depends on the location. It depends on um, the connectiveness with the mentor and mentee. Um, but I know that it's, uh, you know, we facilitate at one summit, uh, a lot of those relationships. We have a tech network um, that we use and leverage to be able to them to keep in contact with their, like to foster the community, to keep in contact with their mentee via this uh, platform. Um, there's a lot of updates and events and community stuff that we're able to keep that community and that base for one summit going. Um, whether the individual is deployed or away at work, if we have a community event in San Diego or Virginia Beach or New York or Boston, like everybody that's been a part of our program can come through. Our new climb for courages are different than our climb higher, which is the you know, are for the uh, kind of the alumni, the veterans of the group, they can come back and stay engaged with, you know, with that level. But, you know, it's amazing to see kind of where everybody lands. Now we are, we are almost 10 years old as an organization, um, like unofficially from that 14, maybe nine years, you know, for the first time we had the idea of the first meeting in like 2013 with like Lisa Sherber, we executed in 2014 and kind of where we are now, um, it continues to evolve. So it's, it's the, you know, the kids are older. Um, they, you know, it's amazing to see um, some families, even when guys get say permanently stationed overseas to say like Germany and their families are going over there and visiting them or they're coming to graduation parties or um, they're taking photos at uh, prom, <laughs> you know, it's really just a full scope of, uh, of impact. And some of them are, um, involved in more of like the uh, continue to do the climbing and the, or their connectiveness is through one summit and some of them are individually run and motivated. Now, I would imagine that when any uh, pediatric cancer patient comes for the first time to attempt to uh, do the rock climbing, I would think there's going to be some, some uh, trepidation nervousness, maybe fear for these kids. What techniques do Navy, do, do the mentors use to calm these kids down and have them focus on uh, the task at hand? And I'll ask yeah, uh, Adam that question. Sure. And I'd like to, um, I know Diane had a point too about the, the mentor mentee relationship. So if we can you know, go back a little bit, I think the, Diane had a few points. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's go back um, to Diane on that. 
Yeah, so we talk about what is a successful mentorship look like. Um, you know, and Adam really touched upon, you know, the variety of what those relationships can be, whether our age group is between five and 18 years old. And each one is different. And we all know the life of a Navy SEAL is busy, as is the life of a cancer family. Uh, so sort of one of the bigger pieces of what we do is, although there's that mentorship piece, which is such a huge priority to us, our goal was also to build a stronger community around the, all these families and our mentors, the mentors' families. And by community, I mean, you know, not only just community events, but opening sort of the lines of communication across the board, hosting our new platform that Adam had, had talked about um, so that we can help maintain communication. But a lot of nonprofits, it's a one-time experience. A kid goes to a camp, they have an experience, and then the nonprofit sort of goes away. Um, we didn't want that. We wanted to make sure that as an organization, we would be there for that family as long as they needed us, whether that is through treatment, survivorship, bereavement. Uh, we want to be there and we want to offer services and events and programs to to have them know that that regardless of what happens, even with your mentorship, that that our our organization will provide, we're going to be doing some horseback riding, some therapeutic riding soon, that we're going to have events for them to be a part of. But we want to bring some of these families together. If you think of even, you know, the closing of Tufts Medical Center, we're going to be that one conduit to still keep those families together that need each other. So if they want to come out to a jewelry event at Kendra Scott or just as simple as watching a game, they can come back and meet each other. And it really shows us what the future of our organization can be, whether it's, you know, bringing the groups together where they need it. And there's not a lot offered out there. That is an ongoing program. And it kind of touches back to the original, really the science behind post-traumatic growth is, you know, a community can help you grow. And that's where you're going to find the support that you need. So if you even look at our mission, we are, you know, facilitating where we're building resilience and facilitating growth. And that growth is across the board for our mentors, for our families, for our kids, for our caregivers. And that's through community and 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 really developing that strength is, as a unit. Well, thank you very much for bringing up that point. And I'm glad that you uh, signaled to speak. I didn't see it, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad that, 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 that Adam did. Um, certainly a great answer. And Adam, you just maybe want to comment on the question that I had, uh, as far as the tech, some of the techniques that the, the, the SEALs will use to get these kids to focus before they begin their climb. For sure. I mean, I, I think it starts with, um, you know, going through and talking about the, the gear. I think that's like a first avenue of, of trust and a, a, a very good communication. Well, I may rewind that back a little bit. There is like a, a, a series of drills run by, we have a team leader that is usually uh, a seals, a seal spouse or a community, like a community member or somebody like a volunteer that is a team leader. And we divide all the mentees and mentors up into little teams and groups. So mentor, mentee paired together, they're in a little group. And then we have these like series of conversations and icebreakers. It's like naming your team and then talking about, 
you know, just different likes and interests. And it really is designed to just break the ice and to get people a little to get the kids and the guys a little bit more comfortable with each other to get the, to get the, you know, it's not overly analytical. It's just a way to kind of break, break the ice and kind of build some communication trusts and some talking points from there. They go into um, like the gear. And I think they most of them have never been exposed. Most of the kids have never been exposed to any of the climbing gear before or even any techniques to climbing. So I feel like it's the first avenue of trust for the guys and for the, uh, you know, the mentees and for the kids is that, okay, I don't know how to use this. I'm, I'm going to go forward because I, I feel like I need to be brave right now. And I'm like a very, a little unsure on how that's, that's going to look like. And everybody's a little stoic on both sides. They go through about sizing up the right gear, explaining on how it's worn, explaining that it's going to like save your life if used properly. Like this is how it's leveraged. And then they going all over um, all like the, the courage pack that they have. We give them a little like camel backpacks and helmets and patches and, and coins and dog tags that have their, their names on it. So I think there's like a, there's a huge cool factor for the kids that they just are really fired up to get like a bag of goodies and, and learn something new. Then it goes into the actual climbing side and obviously starting kids on like a very uh, confidence boosting route first. And just to understand that, like, just take two or three steps and just like, just let go, just let go. And you know, the people are fairly resistant at first, but you just let go and just trust me that I have it that I'm going to take care of you, that if you let go and you're not going to fall or you're going to fall, but I'm going to catch you. And that I you trust me to take care of you and trust your gear that is going to take care of you. And from that moment, then we start working on setting some very specific goals. Like, Hey, just take a couple steps and come down, take a couple hand, climb up quarter of the way, and then just come back down and we'll talk about it. Then we move up halfway and then we set different objectives. Then we move to a different, just like that metaphor we brought up earlier about like climbing a mountain, like one hand and foothold at a time, setting small incremental goals to be able to look at things, trust the process. And then they become problem solvers. And it becomes a little bit of like that experiential learning, that game that they're playing. Like, oh, I did this route. Okay, let's go to a different one. What happened there? Oh, I couldn't make it up there. This is what you could have done. And then you see this like bond and a synergy that comes together. And I think that was a big part of what, even what um, some of the, the child life specialists have said that come to observe is like, it takes us years to build this relationship that you guys build in like three hours. And, and like, it's, it's, it's because of, it's like a shared hardship, which I think we can appreciate in the military and which we're good at. <laughs> we're good at doing things that were, that are going to challenge us and kind of that builds that common bond. And, uh, I mean, that, the team aspect really shines through and the community at one summit and everyone cares a lot. And I think that that trust, that care, that commitment. And I, I think also what's powerful is like Diane usually takes the, always takes the parents aside and has a conversation with the parents. And the big part is the parents we're trying to encourage them to leave. <laughs> like, don't worry, we got it. You see the first couple of minutes, Diane's going to talk to you about the whole day. Like go enjoy this day yourself, like go out with your, your spouse or go out with your friend, go and get a cup of coffee, go get a dinner, go get a lunch. Like just come back to us. This is, this is for, this is for your child. This person, we got it. And um, 
you know, those types of things really, um, I feel like all kind of help the experience of the day and drive the impact that we're looking for. Now, I just want to follow up on uh, with this question. Is there a timetable for success as far as being able to climb to the goal? In other words, are they there one day or does it take longer than that? And how does that work? So I'll, I'll answer this one because I think that, you know, the idea of measuring success is very different for every child, every mentor, um, every age. And as we talk to our parents and we introduce them to the program, we want, we educate our parents before the child even steps in the door. And I like to say our measurement of success could be building a box of Legos and eating as many chocolate chip cookies as possible or reaching a top of a wall and ringing a bell. Our goal is, is breaking down some barriers, learning teamwork, meeting their mentor, being a part of a community outside of treatment, allowing a little relief for their caregivers and, and ultimately sort of helping them reflect and finally tell their story. You know, at the end of our climbs, I think you could probably say if a mentor looks at what their success is, they're going to say, well, my kid hit the top of the wall or my kid just ate, you know, three pieces of pizza, but yet he told me a story about his sibling. He told me or she told me how they felt when they reached the top of that wall and what their expectations are sort of moving forward. It's it's like any type of relationship. There's a give and take, but it's all about listening uh, and telling your story and reflecting on the experience. And that's really our ultimate goal when we, at the end of the day, how what happened to them? What was the change that took place? Uh, if you ask our parents, the child they dropped off and the child they pick up is a very different child when it comes to just confidence and the ability to realize they did something they didn't think that they could do. Um, they met someone that they didn't think that they would ever, you know, know or be a part of their lives. Um, and we've seen some, as Adam said, you know, we'll cover any, we'll take care of any challenge. So we've had one child that we found out two days before they arrived that they were actually paralyzed from the waist down in a wheelchair. And we didn't know the parent had, was not sharing that information. And the mother finally first time out of her mouth said that this is what her son was dealing with. And we brought in an incredible group that helped facilitate a climb and that child climbed and reached the top, but it changed the mother's perspective along with the child's perspective where she wasn't sure what he was going to be able to accomplish in his future. And by watching what he was able to do, he knew that he can fight and he can take on these challenges. But as a parent, she also knew that she trusted that his life was actually going to be the quality that she had hoped for, just in a different way with the different tools and a different approach. And we were able to help be a part of that story. We tell these stories in our stories from the summit and our stories of resilience, um, our profiles and resilience. And it's such a crucial part of the work that we do um, through that piece. I think it, to me, it's one of the most impactful part of, of what our follow-up looks like in our community itself. And my guess is that you get overwhelming support from the parents after the, uh, after the day is over. Has that been the case in almost uh, 
I, I would think in, in probably every instance. Yeah. They become part of our team. You know, it's, it's like anything. There's a, there's a family that I've never met before that were in one of the original climbs. And I always, you know, I wonder about the families that I don't hear from. And just recently they reached out 10 years later that were a climb with Adam. And to me, that's remarkable for a nonprofit to have a family that was involved at the very first climb come full circle, come back around because kids grow, they go to high school, they go to middle school. They're just as equally as difficult to deal with and wrangle in, but to understand that they know that we're that, that we're that constant for them and to come back again and say, geez, we're really looking forward to attending this event and, and getting involved again, to have one of our first climbers, you know, volunteer, but also have Adam write his college recommendation. Like these are, these are really impactful, great stories to tell, but it really shows, goes back to the original mission of, of this growth and community and being all together. And it's the same for mentors. They are so tied in to what we do. It, it's just, it's remarkable. I was just going to ask Adam, how important is this program to the Navy SEALs? I mean, it's the growth into Virginia beach and to San Diego and throughout New York and Boston is just a testament to like how much they care about it. Um, well, it's a testament to Diane and the team of actually continuing to build and grow and, and every day continue to provide like the, the guidance, and the insight to kind of continue to build it. But going back to what I originally said about, you know, mentors coming back and the word of mouth, like reputation is so important in the SEAL teams, probably the most important thing. And that word of mouth is like the strongest marketing campaign when somebody says, Hey, this is a great program. You need to just do it. And that comes from somebody that's like, has an incredible reputation in the community. And it becomes like a word of mouth recommendation. We get the highest quality, you know, mentors. And because people are really protective of our, of our program, they're really protective of our program. They're protective of the kids. They're protective of what we do. And they have like a high amount of respect for Diane and everybody else involved with it. And they take it so seriously. And because of that, they, um, you know, they have a lot of care for it and they care about the future of it and they care about, you know, each, each event, each uh, program, each climb and delivering, you know, the highest quality impact that they can. Yeah. You've talked about a number of programs, Diane and Adam, but this is for Diane that, 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 that you have one of the ones you've not mentioned, but I'm very interested in is called the anchor. Can you talk about that and how important it's been? And certainly with, with Tufts closing will continue to be to have your so-called community communicate with one another. Yeah. Um, A pandemic is a, is, is a catalyst to make you think, um, pivot, build your organization during a time where everybody is going through a lot of challenges and, And with that, um, along with creating our publication, we realized we weren't going to be with our families um, and with our mentors for quite some time. Um, And and I will say our approach was we approached an online platform with the idea of the highest level of security. It's, It's private considering the mentors and the families that we're working with. 
And, and we, we have developed what is called the anchor. Um, it really, this is our base. Since we're back to our climbs, we're launching the majority of it with our first climb in San Diego. Um, and we started to onboard some of our past families. And what the idea is, is to build a safe community to help with build that communication and extend the mentorship and provide resources, entertainment, um, and every aspect of engagement for all of our community, whether it's a child who's sitting in the hospital, whether it's a mentor that's deployed, this is a this is a way that they can start to continue their relationship, communicate privately, um, make it easier on our caregivers knowing that it's secure, but also to supply some really entertaining and educational materials uh, for our whole community. Um, our newest colleague, Max, uh, that's, that's really his baby. And he's done a remarkable job of building what is a whole series of resources. It's, you know, turns down to daily surveys. And once we start our first climb in in San Diego, each family and mentor will be quite, will be required to onboard here. And, and this is the way that we're going to help facilitate those and strengthen the mentorships as you know, Adam and I talked about, it's not easy when we've got a whole variety of age groups and people all over the place, but this is going to be an app on their phone, but we can also do live events through it. Um, we can do game playing, but it's safe, secure entertainment. And we know that we can start to track and really better understand all of our groups, but we can also start to build subcategories of ages. So do I want to put together a team group, teen group that can start to talk to each other. We know that today is not the day, but once we start bringing on, you know, as we continue to build, you know, licensed social workers, that's a, that's an incredible thing to be able to start to offer, whether it's caregiver programs, sibling programs, that's what the future of this type of a platform is going to be for us. Uh, and, and we are incredibly excited about it. We've already seen some of our testers using it and it's, it's really fun to watch and engage. I'm always jump, you know, not that we all don't use our phones enough, but if you're a kid sitting in a clinic and your your app ding saying, you know, Adam has texted you and sent you a quick note, that's that's it's pretty great, you know, and it's we're we're really really excited about it. It also is going to help us you know, really look at the impact of the program through as well. So it checks off all the box for us to to build and grow our program. Adam, now I'm going to give you figures from 2018. It's now 2022, so they're going to be inaccurate. But um, these are the last ones I had read. You had had, at that time, 14 Climb for Courage programs, 350 pediatric cancer patients had participated, along with 200 Navy SEALs. If you have the figures, the roughly the current figures for now, that would be great. And my question would be, do you have any, I know you've got Virginia Beach, uh, San Diego, Boston, and New York. Are there plans for further expansion down the road? I'll give Diana the, the first point there to kind of update you on the numbers. Yeah, I, pr I prepared because I knew that, um, you know, those numbers brought us to the start of a pandemic. Uh, so I did update by the end of the year this year. Um, we will have our first Virginia Beach program, which was going to go into effect in 2019. So by year's end, we'll have facilitated 20 Climb for Courage programs across the country. Uh, 
we will have impacted 400 little warriors, which is patients and their siblings. Our numbers are up to over 200 U.S. Navy SEALs that are actively engaged. And this year alone, in the next three climbs, I would say we'll probably have 35 to 40 brand new mentors that are going to be attending the Boston, New York, and San Diego climb, which is really remarkable for us because they've been wait- our older mentors have been waiting for us to come back. We have all these new mem- mentors that are in the pipeline that that just are are waiting to be a part of our program. That is just shows what our growth and our potential is. Um, one of the important pieces of our work is our team leaders. Um, very early on, Adam pointed out the relationships of even our mentors' families and bringing on wives and this type of significant other. They run the show. And so we've had over 65 wives and um, that have participating, and they are really critical to the success of our program and also helping facilitate the mentorship as the you know, the family behind our mentors. And on top of that, we've had over 40 community engagement programs throughout the year, including our stories from the summit. But once we're up and running next year, we'll probably have about 20 per year of, you know, other activities that kids and families can be a part of. Uh, as far as growth, you know, Virginia Beach, we're going to tackle that first. Uh, and then hopefully next year, get to all four of our markets. Uh, I view growth and being able to start to offer our program in Boston, where we are twice a year, to sort of try to capture some of the other families that can't make that one date. Because a child attends a climb once and then comes in and participates in the rest of ours or a climb higher program. So it's a, it is a the original introduction is that climb for courage, and then we roll them into the rest of our work. Adam, where could people get in touch? with one summit the best the best thing you can get in touch with one summit is through the website um really i mean the website we try to keep that as fresh and update as possible um we also have an instagram account we have facebook um, i mean we have um between our team as everybody's incredibly responsive whether you're you're you can apply as a um you know, uh, support, you can donate, uh, through the website, you you know, you can get in touch with Diane and the rest of the team through that. And that's just the best way to kind of see once again, our mission, we have a great video on there that encapsulates like what we're doing. And it's only like a sliver because I think Diane highlighted, maybe there's a lot of things that we're doing outside the climb for courage is that are maybe a a gateway to enter our program. We have so many other different things. We didn't talk about, you know, the book that we have, Um, you know, the book is, you know, a children's book um, that, you know, our vision is to be able to get it to all the cancer hospitals that are across the country and to be able if you know, on the, on the day that, uh, you know, parents and families get, you know, some terrible news or need some support that it's, it's there for them. It kind of, t- it's a fiction book that kind of goes through, you know, a storyline about building resilience and courage and things like that. And it's kind of a, a framework of the climb for courage is, um, <clears throat> you know, the, um, the story from the summit, the story from the summit is like our, you know, we do a quarterly, anyone can join that. Um, they're a, uh, they're like a quarterly, uh, inspiration, motivational, um, type of, uh, discussion we bring. We had a past mentor, you know, like Johnny Kim on there, who is a, not only a Navy SEAL, but a Harvard medical doctor. And now he's in a current astronaut and, you know, kids can go on there and ask him questions about his patches about being, you know, going to space and training and things in his life. Some are mentors, some are, 
inspirational entrepreneurs and kids and talking about the different programs. So that's just another way to kind of enter. So we're really trying to expand the reach and breadth of like all of our programs. And so we can connect with more people outside the climbs, but um, get back to your question. There's a number of ways our website and, and, and social media being the best ways. And we're pretty small. We're easy to find. <laughs> well, you say you're small, but as we come to the end of the podcast uh, and the reason I, I made that comment about being small is when I was doing research on, on your particular nonprofit, I knew that there was no chance that we would be able to cover every single thing that goes on because there's just so much involved and it is such an outstanding program that you have. It would be, we'd be here for three or four more hours, I think, to go over everything that you have done for these kids, for these families and for the Navy SEALs, the mentors. Um, And I want to, first of all, congratulate you on coming up with such an incredible Nonprofit. Uh, again, as I said at the beginning, uh, when Navy SEALs are involved in anything, it's a big deal. And for them to take the time to want to help these kids uh, just says a lot, obviously, about you, Adam, and uh, now you, of course, uh, Diane. And I want to thank you for taking such a long, such a long time out of your day to talk about what you do. And I want to wish both of you the best of luck as time goes on, as you're going to continue to play a significant role um, in the development of these pediatric uh, cancer kids, giving them such life skills that they can work with as patients and God willing, as they move away uh, onto patient recovery in their lives. So thank you for your time and uh, the best of luck to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that you appreciated listening to a totally new part of the value of Navy SEAL officers. As Adam and Diane plan on growing their One Summit nonprofit, there will be an increasing need for these officers to help, a calling that they will surely answer in the years ahead. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Monday when I will speak with Melissa Wilson, an award winner on many levels, including Emmy Awards, from her position as a news anchor at Fox 26 in Houston. Melissa will talk about her outstanding media career, as well as discuss her now 15-year-old son, Caleb, who is a long-term survivor from his fight with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a diagnosis that he received when he was six years old in 2013.